to get started this morning, I would be mistaken if I did not thank the church for providing our family with a meal train over the past month with our new baby. It was so good. We ate so well. And if you are a guest this morning, or maybe you've been considering joining our church, I will say this. If we lack in music, or if we lack in preaching, we make up for it in the meal train. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Just throwing it out there. That's the biggest amen I've gotten in weeks. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12. If I were to ask you, friend, what does it mean to be a Christian? What would you say? You might say, it means that I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Others might say, it means that I'm going to heaven when I die. You might even use other words to describe what being a Christian is. You might say, it means that God in His grace has chosen me before the foundation of the world to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus and one day live with Him forever because Christ paid for my sin on the cross. Now such descriptions do indeed describe Christians. These are all statements that deserve a a hearty amen. However, as true as they are, they do not completely describe what it means, hear me, to be a Christian. They're insufficient because such descriptions describe Christianity as something that is purely individualistic. Christianity is simply boiled down to me and Jesus. Is this not how many modern Christians view Christianity today? One simply needs to to look at how the gospel is presented in, in many times, in many ways, in many church settings in our land to prove my point. We've all heard it, seen it, or been a part of such a service. The preacher finishes preaching, and then he invites the band back out to the stage. As the keyboardist sets the tone with a little bit of background music, the preacher begins to pray. Towards the end of the prayer, the preacher invites any unbelievers present to trust in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Yet to do so, he invites them to raise their hand in confidentiality while everyone else sits there with what? Every head bowed and every eye closed. The first thing you're telling this new believer is that a Christian, being a Christian, is simply between you and Jesus. It is first and foremost a private matter. We can also look at most of the songs sung in today's churches. They are largely individualistic. There are far more I's and me's than there are we's and us. This doesn't make the songs untrue. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't sing them. 
This isn't even a, a reformed or a charismatic type of issue. My favorite song in Christ alone is written in the first person. You could even look to the Psalms and you'll find hundreds of verses that refer to personal expressions of worship to God. My only point is that most Christians tend to view their spiritual life as simply their business. It's them and Jesus. Yet, that is not how the Bible tends to describe Christianity. Being a Christian certainly involves an individual faith resulting in a personal salvation from a God who loves you personally. However, we often, what we often miss is the Bible's teaching that focuses on the broader implications of our walk with Christ. If you are a Christian, friends, you now have a completely new identity and new responsibilities that come along with that new identity. If you are a Christian, you are a part of the people of God. You are a part of the church. Now last week, I, I sought to answer the question, why does the church matter? I told you that the church matters because the glory of God matters. It is through the church that, that, that God is making His wisdom manifest throughout the world. Today I want to give you kind of part two of that. Part two of why the church matters. Which is my main point of the sermon this morning. Why does the church matter? This is important for you individually and us collectively. My main point is this. It is impossible to be an obedient, God-honoring Christian and not be a part of a local church. It is impossible to be an obedient, God-honoring Christian and not be a part of a local church. Hopefully you've made your way to 1 Peter chapter 2. I will read verses 4-12 through 12 this morning. Follow along. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May God bless the reading of his word this morning.
I will not, you'll notice in, in this text that there are references to unbelievers. I will not be focusing on, on those verses this morning. Our, our topic over the next few weeks is the church. I'm focusing on believers this morning. I'm, inten- I'm intentionally skipping over some of these verses that talk about those who rejected Christ. I did that intentionally. But 1 Peter 2.4 starts off by describing people who come to Jesus Christ. This is what we call, friends, a Christian. Someone who comes to Jesus for life. Someone who trusts in Him alone for salvation. That is why the Apostle Peter describes Him as a living stone. In referring to Jesus as a living stone, this means that Jesus, Christians, whom we put our trust in, came and paid the full penalty of our sin by dying on the cross and receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. He was placed in the tomb and rose from the dead on the third day. And after a few weeks, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Death could not contain him. Friends, the curse of sin is broken. Jesus is alive. Because of his atoning work, all of those who trust in him will live. It is Jesus who is the foundation of our faith. It is built upon his life, his death, his resurrection. The hymn says it best, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus Christ is indeed the living stone upon which we stand. And as we sung about this morning. As I mentioned ago, this individual salvation is the extent of Christianity for many people. It stops here. However, the Apostle Peter doesn't stop here. There are giant implications in coming to Jesus Christ for eternal life. It changes, friend, hear me. It changes everything. It changes everything. Becoming a Christian doesn't just change your eternal plans. From the moment you come to Christ... Everything about you changes. The Bible says that you are a new creation. This morning I want to look at two overarching changes that are a result of becoming a Christian. How do you change? What are the implications of that? I want, I've got two this morning. Point one, if you're taking notes. Every Christian has a new identity. Every Christian has a new I- identity. We're going to talk about a few of these identities this morning that you now have if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian. And the one thing that I want you to notice is that this new identity has nothing really to do with your individuality, but it has to do with a collective identity that you are now a part of. I want you to take a look at that this morning. This first new identity that you have in Christ is a household of priests. A household of of priests. I want us to see the new identity that we have as a result of coming to Jesus. And, and the first way that Peter describes us is a spiritual house composed of individual stones. God has taken each person who has come to Christ, given them life, and has made them a spiritual house. This household is called the church. 
You see, the church is often described as a household in the New Testament. If you want reference verses, you can look at Ephesians 2, 19-22, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, among others. And you'll see the church described as a household. Most often this is in connection with the church being the new temple of God, as we talked about last week. You, you might recall that the church is the new covenant people of God. Therefore, the Spirit of God lives within the people of God. And in the same way that the Old Testament temple was a house for God, God's people are now the house of the Holy Spirit. I think this is exactly what the Apostle Peter has in mind as he immediately tells us that we are being built up as a house for the purpose, if you'll, if you'll see the verse, for the purpose of priestly work. For the purpose of priestly work. Who were the workers in the temple where God dwelt in the Old Testament? Of course, we know this. They were, they were the priests. Christians. Hear me. We are a household of priests called to do priestly work. This is our identity. The next identity that we've been given that this text speaks of is this, that we are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. If you skip down to verse 9, you see that we who have come to Jesus Christ, we are now a chosen race. You, you weren't born into this race. You were chosen by God to become a part of this new race. In this race, there was no Jew, there's no Gentile, no black, no white, no rich, no poor, no educated, no uneducated. There's just the chosen race. It is this chosen race spoken of in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 that says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in, him, in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, the church is this new man. It is this chosen race. It is not marked by external differences. In fact, it is not marked really by differences at all. It is marked by sameness. Everyone in this group has one glorious thing in common. They have been reconciled to God because of Christ's work on the cross. Therefore, they have been reconciled to one another. This is what the church looks like. Sometimes we want the church to look just like us. People who have our same interests, our same income, our same stage of life, our same number of kids, etc., 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 etc. Church... Is it built like that? I pray you find friends here. But I, I pray that your friends, that you love, you love because Jesus loves them and you both have this one glorious thing in common, that your sins have been paid for in full by Christ. And that overcomes any differences that you may have in life. As a Christian, you are a part of a chosen race. This is our identity. 
The next identity that you have in Christ is this, that you are a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. Again, part of our identity is described as priest. However, this time, we aren't just a household of priests. We are a royal priesthood. This, this word royal is good. I, I, there's nothing wrong with it. But I'll make up a, a word that fits better. We are, we are a kingdomly priesthood. This adjective is where we, it's where we get the Greek word kingdom. We are, we are a kingdomly priesthood. We are citizens of God's kingdom. God is our new king. As priests, we exist to serve him and demonstrate his rule throughout the world. And interesting enough, in Exodus 19.6, this is what God said Israel would be if they kept the covenant with God. God told Israel that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. However, through the church, God is doing what Israel couldn't do in the Old Testament. According to Revelation 1.5, God has made the church a kingdom and priest to God. If you are a Christian, you are a part of a royal priesthood. This is our identity. The next identity that you have in Christ is this. A holy nation. If you are in Christ, you are a part of a holy nation. Friends, it is vital that we understand that our primary allegiance is to a new nation. A new nation. It is a nation that is set apart for God's purposes. Our new identity isn't found in being American, Mexican, Kenyan, Japanese, Indian. No, friends, our new identity is found in the people of God, the church. While we need not abandon the love for our country, city, or upbringing, our true nation, our true ethnos, is found in the church. And so how should we relate to this world? Because we still live here, right? How should we relate to this country and our city and, and, and our job? Well, 1 Peter 2.11 seems to indicate that we should walk in this world as strangers in exiles. This world, friends, is not our home. Did we not sing about that this morning, that we are almost where? Almost home. My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? I hope you do. This world, thank God, is not our home. By His grace, it gets far better than this. This world is not our home. The people of the world are not our people. There should be a certain expectation that we do not fit in here. While we work with the hope of seeing redemption in our land, we must persevere whether we see fruit or persecution, knowing this, that we are strangers and exiles in this world. If you are a Christian, friends, hear me, you are a stranger and exile in this world. Instead, you are a part of a holy nation. This is our identity. The final new identity that I want to talk about is this, that we are God's people for God's possession. We are God's people for God's possession. Finally, the text describes your new identity as being a part of the people of God. You are a people for God's possession. This signifies that the church is a group of people that God has chosen to be with Him. The text says that once you were not a people. Isn't that interesting? 
That once you, you were not a people. I mean, of course, before Christ, we were something, right? Weren't we? Uh, we were Americans. We were part of the football team, or we were, we were a part of the, the Smith family, or we were successful business owners. In a way, God is saying that, that none of these distinctions matter. Apart from God, I mean, I say this humbly, apart from God, you're nothing. Apart from God, you're a nobody. It doesn't matter what you have accomplished from an earthly perspective. There is no more important or exclusive group in all of creation than being a part of the people of God. I mean, how thrilled would you be to be a part of an Ivy League school like Harvard? How much of your life would you give away to play professional sports? How hard would you work to, to, to take a seat at the millionaire's table? Yet, if you are a Christian, friends, you are a part of the people of God. If you are a Christian, you are a part of God's people for God's possession. This is our identity. Now, all of this sounds great, doesn't it? I hope so. This is encouraging for you. As a Christian, you've become a part of a people called the church. In this people, you are a household of priests. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's people for God's possession. Hear me, isn't that amazing? Can you imagine what people would pay for such exclusivity in the world if they really understood how good God's church is. Do you understand how good God's church has it? This is stinking awesome. I don't care what you're going through. If you're in Christ, this is awesome. I mean, currently, we see millions of individuals risking their lives, prison, health, and children to cross into this country. This country. This nation. Risking it all. We see billionaires paying billions of dollars for the trophy of owning a professional sports franchise. We see members of Gen Z risking their futures by doing foolish and sinful things on social media with the simple hope of going viral. Then they're risking it all. Yet, do you know, Christian, what we paid or sacrificed to be God's people? Nothing! Nothing! Jesus paid it all. Our admission into this infinitely blessed and exclusive group of people was bought by Jesus' blood. No billionaire could ever afford it. No influencer could ever influence their way in. No politician could ever legislate his way in. No humanitarian could ever earn his way in. The only way into the church is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And all the time I hear this. Oh, we're, we're, so, we're so blessed to be born in America. You hear that, don't you? Friends, hear me this. The overwhelming majority of the people in this country will die and go to hell. How blessed we are, Christian, to be born again, 
into the household of God. For it is only by the mercy of God that we can ever be a part of the people of God. That is exactly what 1 Peter 2.10 tells us. The distinguishing factor between the church and every other person in the world is that the church is marked by the mercy of God. In other words, friends, it is the gospel that produces the people of God. It is the gospel that produces the people of God. Your placement into the people of God is inextricably tied to what it means to be a Christian. Do you see that? To be a Christian is to receive God's mercy. To be a Christian is to trust in Christ. To be a Christian is to be a part of the people of God, the church. It is not just you and Jesus. It is Jesus and his church. Your identity is a part of the collective. Point two. Not only does every Christian have a new identity, a part of the collective, a, a part of the people of God is no longer just you and Jesus, but point two, every Christian has new responsibilities. Every Christian has new responsibilities. As I mentioned last week, many Christians think that the church can be anything that they want it to be. In fact, even more people think that the Christian life can look like whatever they want it to, as long as they're not doing anything egregious. However, there is a shape that the Bible calls the Christian life to take. There are certain responsibilities that the Bible calls every Christian to give their life to. Not only does every Christian have a new identity, they have a new responsibility, new responsibilities that go along with that identity. So if, friends, if we are a people for God's own possession, if we are to be used for His glory, if we are to be used for His purposes, the question is, how will God use us? What will God call us to as His church? We are a people for God's own possession. How will God use us? Three ways this morning. Three ways. First, we are to protect the gospel. We are to protect the gospel. What would the recipients of 1 Peter thought about when they were called to be priests in the New Covenant? Well, they certainly wouldn't have thought about Catholic priests. They would have thought about priests in the temple. And what was the job of priests in the Old Covenant? Well, they, they, they did quite a bit. However, if you had to sum up the jobs of the priests in the temple, their job was primarily protecting the holiness of of the temple. Yes, they worshipped. Yes, they prayed. They did sacrifices. They made offerings. However, it was all under the umbrella of protecting the holiness of the temple. Why? Well, God wasn't giving the Israelites busy work and all that he was calling them to do. Every way God called the Israelites to worship him pointed to his character and to his holiness. And to pervert worship at the temple was to pervert the holiness of of God. As, as it's already been said, the church is now t the temple of God. The church is also called to priestly work. So what is our work? Primarily, friends, it is to worship God. That is what the people of God do. We worship Jesus Christ under that umbrella. 
We come together corporately to proclaim the good news of Jesus through preaching, singing, prayer, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and the reading of Scripture, among other things. It is Jesus who, according to verses 6 and 7, is the cornerstone of our faith. Do we offer physical sacrifices like old priests? No, we do not do that. The work is finished. The true sacrificial lamb has been slain once and for all. As we do this, it is the job of the church to worship God and to celebrate the gospel. Is that not what we do when we baptize? Is that not what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper? Is that not what we do in our small groups? Is that not what we do in preaching and singing? We celebrate Christ. We celebrate the gospel. Therefore, it is the priestly duties of the church to protect this gospel. Please understand, this isn't the job of the elders, this is the job of the church as a whole. This is exactly what we see in Galatians chapter 1. See, in, in, in Galatians 1, we see that the gospel has been perverted as many were requiring new Gentile brothers to be circumcised in order to become Christians. However, Paul rolls up on the scene and says that such requirements are a different gospel altogether. Paul's directions to the church at Galatia is to curse any man, apostle, or angel that came and tried to alter the gospel in any way. You see, the language in the Greek is very, very strong. Paul basically says, hear me, to hell with such people who pervert the gospel. To hell with them. And again, Paul is not writing to the elders or to the deacons in the church at Galatia. He's writing to whole congregations. It is the whole job of the church to protect the gospel. Why does Paul speak so strongly? Well, Paul sees how strongly God reacted if Old Testament priests allowed perverted worship in the temple. The penalty could be as extreme as death. Friends, we must be a people that protect the gospel in the church. We must be. We must fight for it. We must always be on guard. The glory of God and the good of our souls and our children's souls are at stake. We must be reminded, friends, that false teachers can rise up among us, according to 2 Peter. They bring, secret, they bring in secret heresies. Their lives are marked by greed. They're greedy for gain and for power and money, and they secretly and slowly twist the gospel. In defending this gospel and protecting this gospel, some may hear such a call, maybe that's you today, and, and you think, that's for somebody else. That's for the heavyweights or the theologians in the church. However, if you're a baptized believer who partakes of the Lord's Supper, this is your job. This is your job. Hear me. This is your job. Friend, do you know the gospel well enough to protect it? Do you? If not, let me invite you. Grab a brother or a sister in this church who knows the Bible better than you do 
and ask them to disciple you. It's that simple. Come on Tuesday nights. Come on Wednesday nights. Come on Thursday nights. Come on Sunday mornings. Come, be a part. Know the gospel. It is your job as a Christian to protect the doctrine in this church. Number two, we are to proclaim the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are not just to be a people who know the gospel and defend the gospel. We are to be a people who proclaim the gospel. I love the way here that Peter says it. He says, we are to be a people who proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice that we are not just to be individual people who proclaim the gospel. We are a collective group of people tasked with proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And so what does this look like? Well, this actually, it takes several forms according to Scripture. First, there is the verbal proclamation of the gospel from a discipleship and evangelistic standpoint. We take the good news of the gospel to our neighborhoods. We take the good news of the gospel verbally to the workplace. We take the good news of the gospel verbally to the ball fields, social media, whatever. We take it out. It looks like this, like, like Pat and Barb. This can take the form of having people into our homes for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Like Mignon and Mark, this can look like getting involved in the international student ministry and serving them meals for the ultimate purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. This can look like Dave Wolf, Adam Howell, Karen Hatch, and, and, and many others who participate in the ministry of community vet care for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. It can look like James and Abby getting involved with foster care for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. However, friends, as you notice and as you probably see, these are not purely individual efforts. These are efforts in which large portions, our body, large portions of our body are involved with. The proclamation of the gospel also takes another form. The life of the believers and the collective testimony of the church together proclaims the power of the gospel. I'm going to say that again because it's important. The life of the believers and the collective testimony of the church together proclaims the power of the gospel. Our collective lives give witness to the gospel. This is exactly what we see in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-10. through 10. If you're looking for a passage to, to talk about Wednesday night, this is a good one. It says this, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How does the Apostle Paul know that this church in Thessalonica are real believers? Because our gospel came to you not only in word. It wasn't that the church in Thessalonica had individual people that could give a verbal explanation of the gospel. They could talk it out. They, they could explain it. But Paul writes, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. If you have your Bible turned to 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, underline that. I'm sorry, um, 1, 5, underline that. 
The gospel was received in power and with full conviction. In other words, friends, the gospel wasn't just information that they could recite. The gospel took root in their heart and it changed them. It changed everything about them. You see that? Not just one or two people either. The whole church. He writes this, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. The gospel took root in the church at Thessalonica, and it changed their life. They became more and more like the apostles. They became more and more like Jesus Christ, more importantly, as a result. Again, it wasn't just, I can recite the gospel. The gospel changed their life. And look at this next. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they received the gospel, and yes, they were receiving persecution. Yes, their circumstances were hard. And, and that's what made, it's kind of what Austin was talking about this morning. That's what made the light of the gospel shine that much brighter. Because in spite of their circumstances, their love of the gospel and their embrace of the gospel shine forth far greater than the junk that's going on in their life. They received the good news of the gospel, realizing who they were in Christ now and, and what and all, all of its implications, and it gave them such joy and it changed their life. You see that? That's what Paul's saying here. So that, so that, why? For their benefit? For their own individual little club to sit there and be, this is cool. No, look what it says. It actually goes out, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. Well, wouldn't you pray for that to be our church? That we wouldn't just sit here dull in our seats and have interesting conversations, but the gospel would take root in our hearts and that this, this community would see there's something different about these people. Maybe their music isn't impressive. Maybe their preaching isn't impressive. Maybe their childcare isn't impressive or their building or their... But the gospel is clearly among the people of God. They've embraced it. They trust it. They treasure it. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Look how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The church was marked by repentance. That's what marked the people of God. The church wasn't primarily marked by their suffering. The church was marked by joy and power and conviction, perseverance, repentance, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Friends, our lives should be characterized by radical gospel transformation. Amen. Our lives should be characterized collectively, church. Collectively, not just individuals. The collective identity of this church should be characterized by repentance, confession, forgiveness, generosity, faithfulness, perseverance, joy, and what, whatever other fruit the Holy Spirit brings forth from us. As the church gathers 
and people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus get together, their collective lives and testimonies should point to the work of the Holy Spirit and glorify the triune God. That's what we should be. Finally, third point, which I must admit is very similar to this proclamation of the gospel. So if you have trouble making a distinction, don't don't worry about it. But see, we are to provide an apologetic for the gospel. We are to provide an apologetic for the gospel. The other responsibility that the church has is to provide an apologetic for the gospel. What I mean is is the call found in 1 Peter 3.15. We are to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We must always be ready to do so. When we provide philosophical or scientific or hermeneutic defenses of the hope that within us, that is great. That's great. I love apologetics. However, the Bible has something far more powerful that is an apologetic for the gospel. The lives of those who love Jesus. The lives of those who love Jesus. In fact, the context of 1 Peter 3.15 appears to be more about godly living than apologetics as we would define it today. Brian, are you saying preach the gospel and when necessary use words? Not at all. That's not at all what I'm saying. There is no replacement for preaching the gospel. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ according to to Romans 10, 17. We must use words. We must use the word. However, the word of God tells us that the lives and conduct of the church provide an apologetic to the lost and dying world. That's what the Bible says. Peter says it this way in our text this morning, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is something about the holy conduct of the church that can ultimately lead to their salvation. The same can be said for us in response to civil leaders, Slaves and their unbelieving masters, Christian wives and their unbelieving husbands. The conduct of the church collectively points to the glory of God in such a way that this is how God often works to save unbelievers and to bring glory to his name, which would be our hope. Jesus says the same thing in in Matthew 5, 14 through 16 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And a final passage to consider on this point is this, is John 13, 34 through 35. In the context of John 13, Jesus is speaking of his impending death resurrection, and ascension. He kind of poses this scenario. As Jesus goes to be with the Father, how will people know that they are Jesus' disciples? How will, they, how will they know? If Jesus isn't there, what will be the proof? Jesus says this. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Here's your witness. If you have love for one another. 
In other words, it's not simply holy conduct that provides an apologetic for the gospel, but our love for one another, according to Jesus. Friends, I want us to see something. All of the responsibilities mentioned this morning are not simple individual efforts. None of what was spoken of this morning can simply be accomplished on your own. When it comes to protecting the gospel, do you think that means individual Christians walking around the world protecting the gospel at random times at McDonald's or on social media? Do you think that it is the responsibility of individual Christians to march down to CNN or Netflix headquarters anytime that the gospel is marked on their shows? Are individual Christians required to protect the gospel from any and every false teacher that may exist all throughout this world? Is that what God has in mind? No, of course, this is, this is silly. Christians are called to protect, protect the gospel within the proverbial four walls of their church. That's our responsibility. They protect that local body. They protect that flock. That is what each individual will give an account for. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel... Do you think that individual Christians proclaiming the gospel in their cars as they listen to their favorite podcast is what God has in mind? Do you think that individual Christians simply being extra nice to strangers in short bursts at the grocery store is what God has in mind for our lives proclaiming the goodness of God? Well, not in totality, of course. Christians are called to proclaim the word of God and word and deed corporately as a collective testimony to God's goodness. And in God's wisdom, this is what brings God the most glory. When it comes to providing an apologetic for the gospel, is it an individual who simply loves his wife and kids that shows a real contrast between a believer and an unbeliever? Is it a random Christian who is extra helpful to all his unbelieving friends that gives a defense for the gospel? This isn't what the text has in mind. It is the collective holiness of a body of believers and their collective love for one another that does this. As we finish this morning, I love what Mark Dever says. I'd recommend a book to you by this title. He says, The church is the gospel made visible. Love that phrase. The church is the gospel made visible. And he, in it, he gives this, he gives this picture. It's a, I didn't come up with this example. I don't even know if he did, but I read it from his book. He says that the church is like a diamond ring. We're like the bracket. If you have a diamond ring, you can look at it, and you see that there's really two parts typically of a diamond ring. You've got the ring with the bracket, and you've got the diamond, right? You, 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 get the, you understand. The church is like a band and bracket that holds the diamond, which is the gospel. The diamond is the gospel. The church is the ring in the band. The point of your band 
is not the band itself. The point of the band is to do two things. To highlight the diamond. But also, protects the diamond. Right? So that it doesn't fall out. The band protects and displays the diamond. The church protects and displays the gospel. I want us to see our calling here today. That none of this can be accomplished by one individual or one family. This can only be accomplished in the context of a local body of believers. This can only be accomplished in a group of committed Christians in a local context. Individual Christians are not God's plan for the world, the local churches. I don't want you walking, walking away this morning thinking that your individual walk with Christ is unimportant. I want you to understand that biblically, your individual walk with Christ is to be lived out in the context of the local church. It is impossible to be an obedient, God-honoring Christian and not be a part of a local church. I'm not saying that you're not a Christian if you don't join a church. I'm saying that you're a disobedient Christian at best. I'm also not saying that joining a church saves you. You're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. However, in the Bible, Christians are a part of a local body of believers called the church. As I finish, there are likely three types of people in this room. I know probably maybe more, but I could probably narrow it down to three types of people as you receive this message. There's the first type of person. You, you would probably be described as being on the fringes. You have a take it or leave it type of attitude with the church. You come when it's convenient. However, when you look at your life as a whole, the local church is very low on your list of priorities. In fact, perhaps if you couldn't serve the way you wanted to, or your friends or family didn't come here, you would leave and would be very, very slow to find another church. Your name might be in the directory here. However, your heart sure isn't. I would humbly call you to repent of your apathy towards God's church. I would call you to see God's greater plan for your life, and maybe even your family's life. I pray that you would treasure the local church because you treasure the glory of God and the gospel. The second type of person is this. You're doing your best. Some people aren't, just aren't as present with the church as they like, but they truly are doing their best in the season that they're in. I, I imagine for some folks, a sermon like this heaps a lot of guilt on you. Now, I, I don't, friends, hear me. I, I don't want to heap guilt on sensitive consciences this morning. My encouragement to you would be to reach out to others in the body in hopes that we might be able to help lighten your load. Perhaps there are other ways to congregate with the body of Christ throughout the week and we can pursue you that way. Know that I'm not calling you to be here every time the doors are open. 
But understand this, that there are a, a wide variety of options for fellowship within our church. Almost every single day, there is some group meeting in this church. If you want to find out how to get more involved, come talk to me. I'll be here. The third type of people would be this. You're very active in the life of the local church. You're here almost every Sunday. You're here Wednesday. You're serving in some capacity. Brothers, sisters, I I applaud your faithfulness. Do not see this sermon as a call to do more and more and more and more and more. What I might draw our eyes to and just to consider is what the text calls us to as members of Christ's church. Friends, we might be busy, but are we busy with the right things? Do you see that the pursuit and defense of biblical doctrine is your job? Do you see that the pursuit of holy living, not just of yourself, but for others in the church, is your job? Do you see that the proclamation of the gospel is your job? And not just the job, again, of one individual, but of the whole church. Friends, our our understanding of the local church is of utmost importance. Between last week and and this week, I've taken us from a kind of a 40,000-foot view to a 10,000-foot view this week of the church. And over the next several weeks, we will discuss how we live such realities out on the ground level in the context of the local church. It might still seem vague, and hopefully over, over the next few weeks, it's going to start to connect for you. However, between this week and next, may we pray that God, first and foremost, would give us hearts that love the local church because God loves the local church. May we pray that God would give us hearts to prioritize the local church because God prioritizes the local church. May we seek to be an obedient local church because the purity of Jesus' bride is very, very important to him. That is our prayer, church. Amen.